listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. All grief can feel isolating, like no one understands or gets what you're going through. And on some level, it's absolutely true. Even when the circumstances are the same, relationships are unique. So that means grief gets to be as unique as those connections. But knowing there are other people going through the same thing, that can at least lessen the loneliness, making grief a little easier to bear. But what happens when you go searching for stories of loss and the only ones you find are those told by people who don't look like you, who don't reflect your culture, your race, your gender, or other elements of your identity? For Shannon Gibney and Cal Kalia Yang, when grief entered their worlds, they went on a similar search with unfortunately similar results. Writers, friends, and mothers, Shannon and Kalia found themselves sharing another experience, the deaths of their babies. Shannon's daughter, CNA, was stillborn 10 days after her due date. Kalia's baby, baby Jules, died at 19 weeks. As writers, they went looking for words for their heartbreak and grief, but what they found was not only a lack of stories about miscarriage and infant loss, but the ones they did find were written primarily by white women. As a transracial adoptee and among American writer and refugee, Shannon and Kalia couldn't find themselves in the stories they came across. So they decided to create what they so wanted in their grief, a collection of essays and poems written by Native women and women of color. Their book, What God is Honored Here, was released in October of 2019, and we recorded this episode the day after the book launch. What God is Honored Here was published in the United States, where 15 to 20% of pregnant women will experience a miscarriage, and where stillbirth affects 1% of all pregnancies. Within those numbers, there's discrepancies on the prevalence of miscarriage and stillbirth based on race. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the 2015 rate of infant mortality was 5.9% for every 1,000 births. But when you break that down by race, the percent almost doubles. It's 11.3% for black babies, and it's 8.3% for American Indian babies. While research is unveiling many reasons for these higher percentages, from the stress of racism to health factors connected to class and race in the U.S., What's still lacking are platforms for the stories of these grieving parents of color, the stories of interactions with the medical world, stories of intergenerational loss, stories of children trying to make sense of a world in which their baby siblings die but continue to be a part of their family. It was this vacancy that Shannon and Kalia sought to fill with what God is honored here. Kalia and Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief Out Loud. Thanks for having us. Thank you. How did the two of you meet? We've been friends for so long and admirers of each other's work. I'm not sure that we can sort of go back to the 
particular exact moment where we met and became friends. What, what I know is probably about 12 years ago, um, my editor sent me this book called The Late Homecomer. And then the subtitle was Among Family Memoir. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then I looked at the author, Kao Kalia Yang, and I was like, oh, I don't know her. And, and so I opened up the book and I started reading it and I was like, wow, this is really good. And then the more that I read it, I was like, no, this is really, really good. <laughs> and I was like, and not only is it really well written, this is really a story that has not really been told in this really deep way about, you know, the Hmong refugee experience, both in Minnesota and back in Thailand and in Laos and sort of like the secret war, which I didn't know anything about. It was just sort of like my head exploded. And I was like, I have got to interview this woman. So I reached out to Kalia and then we uh, had a wonderful conversation. I'm a professor at Urban Two-Year College in downtown Minneapolis. We had her come in. She was like a keynote at this conference. And so the ball just started rolling from there. Kalia, would you say that's fairly accurate? Yes. I still remember visiting your class for the very first time. And at that keynote that, Shan- that Shannon's group invited me to, that's where I met my husband. So I have a lot to thank Shannon for. <laughs> On the good days, Shannon Gibney, there are bad days where I'm like, why did I say yeah? <laughs> yeah, we both, we both have had that, yes. yes. And then, how, Kalia, how did the idea for this particular book, What God is Honored Here, how did that come together? You know, Shannon and I, so we met, we were both single, we were both starting our careers. Um, but of course, because it was the, the, the right time, um, we both fell in love at approximately like the same time. I got married first and I got pregnant and and then I experienced the loss of baby Jules at 19 weeks. And then I got pregnant again. And in that time, Shannon had met her ex-husband. They got married and she was also pregnant. So we were pregnant at the same time. Shannon and I went to the hospital at the same time. She had a stillbirth and she posted on Facebook and I was in this hospital room waiting to decide whether I should induce or not. And I saw her message. And so I made the decision to induce. We were, had been walking parallel professional lives, but then, then we both experienced tremendous grief. And so a few, a few months after Shannon experienced her loss, she wrote me uh, a message in Facebook. She said, Kalia, I know that you've gone through something. I've gone through something. I've been looking desperately all over the bookshelves and in movies and art for anything that would speak to this, this experience, this feeling inside of me. And I too had been looking. And so Shannon suggested, she said very lightly, one day when we're ready, would you ever work on something with me? And I said, yes, when our childbearing years are through, let's have this conversation conversation again. And, and you mentioned that searching, the looking for words or images or narratives that would speak to stillbirth and miscarriage and fi- not finding those, and then particularly not finding those written by women of color, indigenous women. What is What was it like to be met with such an absence of voice around that? And, and when you did find the voice, to have it be primarily the voice of white women talking about the white experience? For me, I can't even begin to tell you how many late nights I spent going through my phone looking. There were so many nights when I couldn't sleep and I would just surf through different blogs looking to find someone who had experienced something similar to me. I was lonely, and in that loneliness, there was, there was this feeling of isolation, this yearning to share. 
No, for me and Shannon, I think that with this particular book from the very beginnings, um, when, once we put out the call, there was a lot of pushback from white folk, you know, men and women we knew and those we didn't. And then once again, when we started shifting through these submissions and for the ones when we said no to, one of them was a poem by a man from a very prestigious institution, a professor. And we said, we don't think this is a good fit for our collection. He wrote back and said, I don't want to be a part of your stupid collection anyway. And then even right before the launch yesterday, somebody who's profile picture was a gun posted in the launch and he said why are you saying that white women's experiences of loss don't matter and of course that's not what we're saying at all and so neither of us responded but I think at, at every single point where there was pushback it forced us to reflect on why this project was so necessary I think sometimes you go through these experiences of loss. And my father would say to me, because he's a beautiful song poet, that all of life is a garden of meaning. That it is the job of the artist to harvest from the garden of life. In my own experiences, there were all of these experiences that had just never been looked at, growing wild, growing crazy around us, you know, because it isn't a surprise. The statistics about Black women and um, healthcare, it's coming, more and more research is coming out every day. Of course, for a tiny refugee group like the Hmong, there is nothing. But for Native women too, there's research and documented, you know, statistics about what's going on in our healthcare system. Shannon, what about you? You know, you go through the shock of an experience like that the physical shock, the emotional shock, the psychological shock. And what I came to find, I think, nothing would ever and nothing will ever um, take away that grief, that hole, ever. But for some reason, being able to hold the grief with other people um, having them not just, you know, say platitudes like, you know, time heals wounds. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I want you to sit in the fact that I lost my daughter uh, at 10 days after my daughter was due. She was full term. She died and we don't know why and we'll never know why, right? And I have to live with that for the rest of my life. I want you to sit in that with me and that makes it bearable. It, it makes it easier to hold and easier to bear. Um, and so that kind of actual physical community was what got me through. And then at a certain point when I sort of, you know, my body was healing and I, I started being able to sort of get back into the rhythms of my quote unquote normal life. I mean, Kalia and I are both writers and readers, right? That's what we do is try to make sense of what it means to be human through, through the written word. When you look out into the sort of discourses of our society and you don't see yourself reflected. I mean, both Kalia and I have intimate experiences with that. Her being among refugee, there's just almost nothing written about that experience uh, before her book. Um, and then me being a mixed black transracial adoptee and most of the literature about that experience being written by white adoptive parents who don't identify as such. You know, we're, we're very familiar <laughs> with the violence of lack of representation and misrepresentation. You know, they were, there were books, there were baby blogs, et cetera, but they were mostly dominated by 
white middle-class women who had the time on their hands, had the resources, had the access. Um, and I said this last night at the book launch, and I don't know if this makes me like a bad person or an elitist or whatever, maybe it just makes me a writer, a critical thinker, but a lot of it was not, for me, in my opinion, well-written either. You know, and one thing that Kali and I were very clear about from the beginning of this project was that we wanted it to be a literary anthology. We wanted it to not be filled with the same sort of imagery, whether it's religious imagery, you know, balloons and babies and smiley. Like, we don't, we didn't want any of that stuff, you know? We wanted to really get down to the nitty gritty. You didn't want platitudes in the writing any more than you wanted to be hearing them from friends and family. No. You know, in my piece, there's this one scene where right after, you know, I'm rushed to the hospital and then, of course, they they show the ultrasound and the baby's not moving. There's no heartbeat. And, you know, your, your brain doesn't work in those situations. And so, you know, my first response is like, OK, the heart's not beating. What can we do to get it started again? And then I realize what I've just said, right? And then I'm like, I need to go to the bathroom. And there's like five doctors and two nurses in there with me. And so I go to the bathroom. I remember gripping the sink and just screaming. That's the realness that we wanted. Yeah, that imagery comes through so clearly, not only in your essay, but in all of the essays throughout the book. Not the same specific imagery, but just the the realness and the rawness of this experience and how the isolation piece of that too, and how people, everyone has to go through this on their their own, even if they are surrounded by medical professionals and family and friends. No, one thing also that I think is important to add here is that all my life, I knew that my mom had six miscarriages after me. I was old enough by the time she was having some of the later miscarriages to remember, remember that there were baby boys. I remember all the blood loss and how everybody said too much blood this time. I remember looking out at the triangle of the door, waiting for the shape of my mother to walk toward me. But I never understood what she was going through. It wasn't until I was on the hospital bed when the baby had fallen out of me, when my mother, when the nurse said, does anybody want to hold him? And it was my mother first who said yes. And my mother said, you're so beautiful, baby. You're so beautiful. Thank you for coming, for trying to come. You know, in the days after, in the loneliness of not seeing experiences like mine reflected, I also felt this deep loneliness for my mother, this finally, this understanding for the experiences that she had gone through and the reserve of strength that she was able to offer me in that moment, the example that she set, you know, because after she held him, she passed him on to me. I held this, this child made of light in my arms, you know, But in all of that loneliness of looking for, I also knew that these stories existed to be found. All these women of color started sharing their own stories with me. And so even from the very earliest days of that that sadness, I understood that it was a sadness that I shared with many other women before me, the women closest to me. And that if we could do this one day, we would not only be honoring our own stories, but the voices of those who've come before, and those who will surely come after. And that's one thing that I'm also very proud of with the book is, you know, we have Kalia's story, and we have the just crushing story of her mother, right, that she translates or narrates. Um, And then we have Lucille Clifton's 
poetry and of course the name of the anthology, What God is Honored Here is taken from a Lucille Clifton poem that she's taken that phrase from the gospel of Colonus. You know, Kalia found that that line when we were searching for possible titles. What do you think, Shannon? And I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> like, this is, you know, this is it. You know, when you were, again, I loved what you said, Jana, about some of it you can go through and people can hold you as you go through it, but some of it you just have to go through yourself. And when you're sitting there in the middle of the night and it's just you trying to process this crushing grief, it, the phrase may very well come to you, what God has honored here. And what has that phrase meant to both of you? You know, I'm not a Christian. My mother-in-law is an ordained um, minister. And in the moment when it was time to say goodbye, she said, can I say a prayer? And I was just so thankful. You know, when I was waiting for him, I looked out the window. The only the only light was coming, you know, entering. I could see it. There was this church across the street, and it was a figure of Christ kneeling, bowing. I grew up as a, I'm the granddaughter of four shamans and shamanism, of course, is not a choice. It is a calling. So it's a rather unique position to have all your grandparents serve as mediaries between the world you live in and the world of the spirits. It was an incredibly spiritual experience for me, as I believe this book is, you know, to limit it to sadness is, is, is just far too flat. It's a multidimensional experience. Late at night when I put my hands on my belly and I felt I could feel him swimming inside of me. You know, I, I felt it. Of course, my husband, when I put his hand on my on, on that very same place where I felt the baby swimming, he felt nothing. And when he told me he felt nothing, I looked at him and I said, It's because it's because you don't you're not in my heart right now. The baby swims in my heart. You know, and I knew that he was with my ancestors. I believed that deeply and I believe it still. In the Hmong culture, we believe that babies fly up in the clouds and from there, they can see the course of rivers and the trajectory of mountains. We believe that they choose to come down to the people walking on the earth. So I believe that he chosen to walk down, to fly down into my heart, to sink down into my womb and to surface in my arms, but that didn't happen. And yet his coming would invite eventually his sister and his brothers. So I believe these things. Um, I think the experience of loss in this way for me was deeply spiritual. And in, in that spirituality, I wasn't lonely. Yes, angry. Yes, disappointed. Yes, afraid. But I was at peace in the understanding that he was now where, where we all will one day be. And my husband, who is a Christian boy, perhaps for him, baby jewels is in heaven, this place where he will one day visit, perhaps live. I'm going to go to the land of the ancestors. There's an open invite for my husband if he wants to join me. (laughs) (laughs) In the realm of the ancestors, uh, one day we will all be reunited with our stories and with these pieces of our hearts that are and are no longer here. And Shannon, how about for you? What was what was or is or continues to be your connection with that phrase? For me, it's a phrase, it's a profoundly human phrase, a profoundly human longing and emotion, this desire for things to make sense and 
to have meaning in, in every moment. And if we're completely honest, <laughs> it, it doesn't always, you know? Um, a lot of times things have meaning later on. I'm a Buddhist and, you know, one of the Dharma doors, probably I would argue the most powerful Dharma door is suffering. A lot of people suffer through loss, you know, uh, through their relationship with loss. And, and certainly there's always pain with loss. For me, that central organizing phrase, what God has honored here, it just expresses that primal human yearning for both motherhood and, and meaning to make sense in something so uh, drastic, so painful that it just cleaves you. There's no sort of like outward protective shell that, you know, we have when we walk through the world, let's say like normally, um, that's all just been cleaved away. And so what's left, you know, and how do people deal with, with that in different ways? I think it's fair to say that most of us who are alive believe in the process of life. And when you see that process, especially the process be born of you and not come to be, you really wonder then, I know I did. Like, what is the point of this? You know, what is the point of this? Yeah, it's interesting that combination, as you were mentioning, Shannon, that it that a loss like this will bring you to the ultimate core of who you are. And so there's that piece. And then also, as you were saying, Kalia, it also brings into focus, what's the purpose? Where do we fit? How do I fit? How does this loss fit? Yes. And you both have other children. Shannon, you had a son who was three and a half at the time that your daughter died. And Kalia, you have three children who have been born since baby Jules. And how do you talk with them about their siblings who died? That's a particularly moving part of this journey for me. My son was completely devastated as well when CNA died. He was so looking forward to being a big brother. I, I had a baby. Um, I got pregnant a little over a year after CNA passed. Um, that baby was born healthy. Marwen, she just turned five um, yesterday, actually. Um, and he loves, my son Boise loves being a big brother. It's part of our family story. CNA is part of our family story. He will even correct people. People will say, yeah, and so, you know, your family has two children. He's like, no, there's, there's three. He's like, I have two sisters, just one is dead. <laughs> it stops people. It's always <laughs> stopped. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just a fact, right? Like my eyes are brown. My dad is Liberian. I have a sister who's dead. She died, you know, like it's just facts. My daughter now, of course, coming after CNA is very interesting for her. You know, she's always asking about, you know, well, CNA, if CNA were here, mom, we'd have to get a bigger car. We'd have to get a baby car seat because, you know, she'd just be a little baby, you know? And then my son, who's nine, almost 10, he's like, no, now she would be a year older than you, Marwen. She would be six. It's oddly comforting to me to be able to talk to them in this really normal way. My mom was telling me yesterday, I don't remember this, that maybe like a year after CNA passed, we were all in the car and Boise, so he would have been almost five at that point, said, mom, I know why CNA died. 
it's because of your running that something probably happened while you were running, you know? And I was like, I do not remember this at all. And my mom was like, well, some of it, you might've blocked it out. And I was like, that's true. And I said, what did I say? And my mom was like, well, you said, you know, I, I appreciate you trying to figure this out, Boise, but you know, that's, that's not the reason why, unfortunately we, we probably will never know. Um, I can't really talk to you about this right now, though. We'll talk about it later. I mean, he, he was really sad when his sister died, though. I mean, he was, he, the whole house was sad. He was sad. But I mean, I want to teach my children not to shut down around sadness and pain because it just doesn't help, you know? And my son is a feeler. Um, and he loves his sister. I mean, this is the thing that I tell people all the time. Um, and I think comes through abundantly in this uh, collection and these women's stories is like, yeah, I could avoid all this pain and just sort of like put some concrete over it emotionally and pretend that this never happened. But then I wouldn't have the love that I have for my daughter either. And I see that in my children as well. It's the same thing. Yeah, that the opening to the pain and the sadness or the anger and the rage is the same opening to the love and the connection. Yes, and Kalia, how about for you? How do you talk with your three children about their brother Jules? So after baby Jules, um, you know, like a lot of like a lot of miscarriages, uh, we didn't have a funeral. The hospital did a mass cremation, uh, but they gave us a memory box and they took some photos of us. In this tiny little memory box, there's a little baby blanket, and the the corner is was stained with his blood, so it's it's rusty brown. And there was also the first outfit. They put him in an outfit for me. So there was that outfit in there. We came home with a memory box. Three months after the experience, I told my husband that I was ready, that we should go and bury the memory box. He asked me where, and I said, Lake Phelan. It's where we got married. It's the special place in my heart. You know? and, and so we went on a very cold November morning. We dug a hole and we buried this memory box. Whenever we go by Lake Thalen, I tell them, beneath that big tree, that's where the memory box of your baby brother, your big brother, baby Jules, that's where it is. So all my kids, sometimes they'll go there and Shenyang will sing him a song. Um, in everyday conversations, they talk about him. They say, oh, baby Jules, you know, mommy, what, why did he die? What happened? And I do my very best to tell them that I don't know, that the doctors never found out why, that many times there wasn't a reason why but he is their big little brother. That's how they refer to him. Someday I'll bring it up a lot and my heart can't handle it. And I'll say, thank you for trying to trying to talk about this. And I understand, but very similarly to Shannon, I, I would tell them, but today mommy's heart can't handle it. And I am keeping the photos and I know why. There will be a day when I will be ready and when they will be ready to look through the photos together of baby jewels with me. Baby Jules by himself. But that day isn't today yet. I think part of this part of this experience that I've come to respect is that you only you can only take as much as you can take. You can't you can't take so much that, that you break. And learning how to listen to that piece of yourself is integral to this whole puzzle. But we talk about baby jewels in the course of everyday life. The boys have a friend now called Julian. And they say, is, is that what his names would have, is that what it would have been? And I, I say, to me, he was, and he will always remain baby jewels. And they say, is that because he's like a jewel? And I tell them, in my heart, yes. 
in daddy's heart, yes, in your hearts, yes, he's always a jewel shining away. You know, so we talk about baby jewels regularly. He is a part of our life. I don't want to deny my children the truth of being my children, if that makes sense. I've never, I've never hidden my history or the poverty of my growing up years. You know, I, these things are a part of me and I love me and I want them to love all of me. In the acknowledgement in the book, I say that my children will be raised by my truths, even the tragic moments of my life will be a part of the thing that I give them in this experience of life. I'm sitting in, in awe and appreciation of, of the way both of you are able to kind of walk in and out of that realm of, of opening the door for your children to be able to connect with their siblings and to talk about their grief and to talk imagine what life might be like if they were here with them today in the physical form and also to be able to set a limit for yourself, for your heart, and for your grief, so that your kids, it's not an either or. I think so often sometimes with kids, it's we don't talk about that, or I have to just take in everything that's going on. And to be able to find that place of this is what I can handle today, we can come back to it at another time. Yeah, well, and you're also modeling for them, right? I mean, <laughs> we with parenting so much is about trying to be your best self to model for your kids. And some days, you know, your best self looks really different um, than what you would like, but you know, it's not easy <laughs> to be a human being. It's not easy, you know? Um, and so how do you deal with the problem of pain? I, I think Kalia's right on the money there with, she was saying last night at the book launch, you know, we're really different people. <laughs> she was like, Shannon is very tall. I'm not. Shannon is loud. I'm sorry, you know, like, uh, you know, but what we both have in common, I think, is um, a commitment to truth, which to me, you know, I was telling my writing students, you can talk about, you know, technique and form and learning your craft, and you have to do all those things. But the reason why you do that is to get at the core of emotional truth, what it means, again, to be a human being. Um, and Kalia and I both have that commitment, both in our writing and in our daily lives. That is what we're striving for always. It makes me wonder too, speaking of like the core, the truth of what it means to be human is to acknowledge and to wrestle with all of the emotions that can come with loss and with grief and with death. And what really came through in so many of the contributions to your book were those feelings of responsibility, you know, of self-blame, of guilt. And how how has it been for each of you to kind of walk through those emotions if they've been part of your process? You know, for me, as my father would remind me, I'm not a child of war. You know, for every Hmong kid that was born in that year that I was born, 1980, in Bambina refugee camp, we knew that two others died so we could be alive. For every Hmong living, two others died so we could be here. So many people were lost in that war. Growing up, I've always felt a responsibility to live a life that is big enough for just myself. You know, as a writer, I can only imagine how if those two who had not died so I could be here, if, if they were alive, wouldn't one of them be a better writer or wouldn't all of us together envision a better pathway into this life that we share, we could share potentially, possibly. I didn't blame myself after the loss of baby jewels, but there was an understanding that the hope and the dreams that I was starting to harbor and to, to hold for him, that I had to live those dreams. To, to, to be, to be the way I wanted his life to be. 
which was to embrace the truth of your experience, to be open and generous in who you are, to give your very best to every single moment you're presented, understanding that one moment opens up the possibilities for the next. And I don't think that this is unique to me. I think I've heard this from other women as well who've experienced grief. It's, it opens your heart up in entirely different ways. It stretches the boundaries of who you are in different directions. I never knew how loud I could cry. So, so baby Jules changed the world for me. He changed me in the world. I now want to live in a way that would make him proud of his choice to come down to me. And I, I wanted to be a good person before, and I believe I was. But now I know how hard it is to bring one human life into the world. And so all of human life has become so much more precious. You know, today at the dentist, my little boy said to the, to the, to the dentist who was, who had rough hands, he said, you know that human beings love their children? And the, and the dentist said, what, what are you saying? And he goes, all I'm saying is that human beings love their children and we should be, try to be gentle to the human children around us. <laughs> 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 you know, and he, he didn't mean to, but in that moment, I thought of baby Jules. You know, and it wasn't a sadness, it was a happiness. It seems like, from what you're saying, it's less about feeling any responsibility for the loss and more now a renewed responsibility for life and how you're living it. Yes, for me. And Shannon, how about for you? What's been your experience with those? feelings or not having those feelings of blame and responsibility and guilt? Guilt is really hard for me. I was raised Catholic, but not hardcore, you know, and there's a lot of sort of guilt built into that religion. But, um, you know, my baby was 10 days late. She was 10 days late. But yeah, right after it happened, I mean, at first is, you know, just like the shock and disbelief, but, you know, why did this happen? what happened, you know? And um, I remember talking to my Dharma teacher and he's like, you know, that is a completely normal question to be asking. And a lot of us ask that after these deep losses. He's like, but it's not really the right question. He's like, because you think that that's gonna make you feel better, but it won't. And he was right. <laughs> You know, and for me, I mean, it was hard. I went to, after it happened to, you know, I went to, uh, you know, they have these sort of um, high-risk pregnancy groups and um, fetal loss pregnancy groups that are sponsored by the hospital. And it was really hard for me because, you know, I would walk into these settings and these women who had all these issues trying to get pregnant and, you know, infertility and this health issue and that health issue, I had nothing. I was high. I was basically, I really was one in a million, you know, it, it just so hard for me to not understand why this happened through time. I came to understand that, you know, that, that was not serving me and that I've had to every moment <laughs> breathe in, breathe out, just kind of let that go. And it was actually a relief to me to read through the woman's stories that we started to get in the anthology and to realize this is, this is actually a common response, sort of analogous for me to when 
I first started meeting other transracial adoptees in my 20s, that is a very structurally isolating experience and you feel like you're the only one, you feel like you're a freak. And then you start meeting these other transracial adoptees and you realize, no, this is just what happens when you have this experience. They feel the same way. It's like relieving in some way to know that this is a shared experience. So perhaps that lessens my personal onus or my personal responsibility around it. Right. Right. I think Shannon and I, from the very first, while cognizant of what our experiences did to us and what it could mean, we were always looking for women across different cultures and religions and traditions to share their experiences too. We were never feeling a void, if that makes sense. Yes, that is a byproduct of this book, but we wanted to create bridges from that void to each other. And I feel like that is the biggest triumph of this book, that we have done this thing across cultures and religions and traditions and age and generations. We've spoken together to say that our experiences matter, that our babies matter profoundly to us and to each other and thus to this wide world that we belong to. But we also understand, Shannon and I, that this is the beginning of a hard road. We're in a different phase now. The book is written, but now it needs to live in the world. What I find as a Hmong American writer and a refugee is that so often my books and my work is limited to those interested in refugees or interested in the Hmong story. That very often and so much more often than I care to admit, People want to limit the reaches of my work, the breadth of my humanity, to the circumstances that have borne me. And then I want to say to everybody at large, everybody who loves to read, everybody who's looking to understand the human condition, that a book like this offers not only insights on grief, but it reminds all of us what we have to give, what we are given every day, whether we choose to receive it or not by understanding and hearing and seeing and receiving the stories around us from all those who have not had a chance to speak for themselves for far too long. It's such an important point that someone might come across your book and read the title, you know, What God is Honored Here, Writings on Miscarriage, Infant Loss by and for Native Women and Women of Color and think, oh, well, that that's not me. So that book is not going to, I'm not going to get anything out of that book. And to to recognize that the universality of loss told through the unique lens and perspective of someone different from us offers so much for us to learn about how to be a human in this world among other humans. Yes. We had a white trans man write a very (laughs) moving review of the book on that galley and he was like, you know, I picked this book up because it, because it's so far outside of my experience or anything that I probably will experience. And, and he was like, so moved by it. And he was like, I've learned so much from that experience, you know, and it just, that really resonated with me and meant a lot to me. Well, I'm grateful to both of you for the work that's gone into this book and recognizing how much of a personal experience it would be to have dealing with your own grief and then to be interacting with these women and these writers about their grief and then to put it together in something for all of us to be able to read and to learn from. So thank you so much for this work. Thank you for being part of the show. I know listeners out there are going to want to know, how do I get this book? How do I get in touch with both of these women? What's the best way for people to connect with you? 
So the book is available anywhere books are sold. We always urge people to support your local independent bookstores, uh, but you can also buy it online. My website is shannongibney.com. You can always uh, send me a message there. Kalia's at kowkaliayang.com. We're both on Twitter. Um, we're both on Instagram, but really I think we both spend more of our time on Facebook and one of our contributors, uh, just Rona Fernandez just created a Facebook page about the book. Um, so you can like that and you can keep up with updates about the book there. There's also a pinned post there that asks for, uh, folks to share their own experiences with infant loss and miscarriage. And also, you can find out more about the book uh, from the University of Minnesota Press website. So listeners, lots of ways to connect. I will put many of those links in our show notes because I know many of you are uh, transporting yourselves from place to place while you're listening. So please don't try to write all that down. I'll put it in the show notes. And Shannon and Kalia, thank you again for being part of the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And listeners out there, we're grateful for you for tuning in and making the show happen. Um, As always, if you have an idea for an episode or someone we should talk to, or if you just want to tell us what you think about the show, please reach out, help at Dougie.org. And we are produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families. We're a nonprofit. We uh, provide all of our grief support services to kids and teens and young adults at no charge. So if you're ever drawn to supporting our show or our program, you can do it real easily online. You just go to dougy.org forward slash grief out loud. And there's a big blue button that says donate. You can just click that. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time.